Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. I am Joe Wolfon, and joining me on this Wednesday morning after draft lottery night, after an electric game one of the Nuggets Lakers Western Conference final, is my co host, Joseph Cacharo. Talk to me, Cash. Great game of basketball. Can't wait for the rest of the series. And I will also add that uh, not only did we witness that opening game of the 2023 conference finals last night. We also witnessed the San Antonio Spurs once again with a transcendent big man projected to go number one, win the lottery. 1987, David Robinson, one of the few years the Spurs were bad, even back then, in the lottery, David Robinson projected number one pick, San Antonio wins. 1997, the first time in a, in, in a decade that they are bad because David Robinson was hurt. Spurs end up on the lottery the year Tim Duncan's going to be the number one projected overall pick. Spurs win the lottery. 2023, yeah, the fourth or third straight year that they missed the playoffs, but really the first year that they truly tanked and like went to the bottom after averaging 33 wins the previous three years. Victor Wembanyama, the projected number one pick, and the Spurs win the lottery. How long do you think this is going to extend Greg Popovich's coaching tenure for? How close do you think we are to technology that'll have us living into our like 120s? Because, right? Oh, I thought this was going to like there's going to be hologram pop on the sidelines coaching the Spurs in like 30 years. Yeah. <laughs> when, uh, when Wembanyama, you know, after a hopefully very long and productive and championship ridden career, after 22 years in the league, calls it quits. So, 23 years from now, when the Spurs have their first really bad season again in almost a quarter century. And win the lottery again, we'll be having the same conversation. Hopefully, we're retired by then, but pop us. Man, sadly, gone. I would not put it past penny-pinching NBA owners to do whatever they could to just hire an AI to coach their team rather than having to pay a human being. That's yeah. where we're headed for sure. It is. Um, but Wemby, you know, he might be the just a, a basketball player engineered in a lab, ridiculously tall and long with ridiculous ball skill and he is going to transform that Spurs franchise once again. I mean, I guess we'll see, obviously. Did you see the uh, the the quote, the Woj quote? Which I still don't know if that was just him trying to add to the drama himself off the top like at the top of the lottery or if he was more so quoting like the scouts he's talked to when he said, you know, this is a guy that maybe could be the the greatest prospect in the history of team sports. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's got to be some hype. I mean, I've watched Wembenyama play. I thought you were He's a ridiculous a prospect based on what I've seen. I uh, I can't speak to the history of team sport and rank every prospect and come up with a notion of where Wemby fits in that hierarchy, but he's undoubtedly an amazing prospect. Uh, we'll see how it all translates to the NBA and whether... You know, the physicality and speed of NBA basketball has any kind of diminishing effect, whether he can stay healthy. I mean, that's probably the big thing with players of that size. Uh, I feel like that's always going to be the biggest question. So, yeah, I will say and I can't remember who wrote it now. Um, it was a couple months ago, but someone did a good feature this season on Wembenyama that included and, it, and I was encouraged to see it stuff about how he and his like representation and his trainers were already being very proactive when it came to how they were training his body because they were very aware of how people his size often fared from an injury perspective in the NBA. 
so much so that they were doing like they were focusing um certain stretches and exercises and like weight training on like the toes and like things that specific because they were trying they were come, trying to come up with all these like injury prevention methods for someone his size. So again, I'm like, you know, I mean, I don't know enough to say whether bigs before him did that, but I will also imagine just naturally the way technology, medicine, uh, athlete training has improved over the years. And the fact that he seems proactive about that specifically when it comes to like his lower body, the feet, you know, the areas that bigs usually get hurt. Here's hoping that, you know, he, he ends up being the true unicorn that actually at that size, you know, what is he? Seven, five can actually seven, four is the official measurement. Okay. But yeah, uh, just as you know, we were texting each other last night. I know you wrote about this too. Just will always be insane to me. I don't know that there's a better system or a better way to do it, but just crazy how the fates of these multi-billion dollar sports franchises hinge on the whims of these bouncing ping pong balls and the Spurs gain is the Rockets loss, the Hornets loss, the Pistons loss, maybe more than anybody's Pistons who finished five games worse than any other team ended up finishing with the worst possible pick that the worst team in the league can get, which is the fifth pick. Yeah. Tough beat for that franchise. But as you were quick to remind me when I was sort of bemoaning their luck, they did win the lottery a couple years ago. It's just, I'm still high on Cade, big picture, but he's got to get healthy. And honestly, the first couple years of his career have been pretty forgettable uh, in large part because of those injuries. So how sad um, does your team have to be for people, even in NBA media, to forget that you just won the lottery two years ago because your team is so depressingly bad? You're like, surely no type of luck has touched this franchise (laughs) in recent memory. Okay, before we, because I know you want to talk about game one of the West Finals, as we should. But before we get to that, can I just, on this note, quickly run through how insane the Spurs winning was? And I know people be like, what are you talking about? They had one of the worst records in the league. They ended up tied for the best lottery odds. But the point of this is just to remind people that, and this is what I wrote about and you alluded to it, is that there's so much more to it than just tanking, right? Because there are a lot of teams or fans of teams that, the morning after or the night of Lottie are going to look at that and be like, well, see, like my, if my team would have just tanked, they could have had uh, Wemby. And if maybe like teams like the Pacers and the Jazz are sitting there thinking like, oh, like really wish we could have those like that early season back when we got off to those surprising starts. It really burned our lottery odds in the end. Like all this stuff, even Charlotte, by the way, who had the third worst record in the league as late as February 12th. The third worst record is what ended up winning the lottery. And then the Hornets randomly went 12 and 12 down the stretch on the back of a surprising defense. Charlotte fans are probably like, wow, if we had just you know, hung in there as a tanker instead of like get like being respectable the final two months. The reminder that there's so much more to it than that. So the Spurs ended up in a coin toss with the Rockets for the second and third seeds of the lottery. Because they finished tied in the standings. And though that coin toss didn't alter the overall odds of getting the first overall pick, what it did was, so if you if you finish with the second and third worst records, you have the same odds for the first through fourth picks. But the second seeded team or the second worst team can finish no lower than sixth and their 
highest probability landing spot is actually fifth, whereas the third worst team can finish as low as seventh and the highest probability landing spot is actually sixth. So on that day, the Spurs obviously felt like losers. You lose 60 games, then you also lose this coin toss. You end up, you know, on track to finish, say, sixth by odds and you can finish as low as seventh. But the reason they ended up in that coin toss rather than just finishing with the second worst odds, which would have landed them at the fourth pick in the grand scheme of things, is because they won game 82 against a Mavs team that was doing everything they could to lose their final couple games to the point where they got fined $750,000 because they threw game 81 while they still mathematically had a chance to make the postseason. So the Mavs, who needed to lose game 82 to secure their chances of finishing with a top 10 pick and keeping their pick. That helps the Spurs unintentionally win a 22nd game. That puts them in a tie with the Rockets. That ends up in the coin toss, which the Spurs lost to go from the second best odds to the third best odds. And it ended up that the combinations that came with the third best odds included the four number combination that delivered the prospect. Adrian Wojnarowski said might be the greatest prospect in the history of team sports. So all that is to say, you know, it, it is a good reminder that like, it's not just, oh, my team tanks and then, you know, like good things happen. Like so many things have to break right, even for a tanking team, including sometimes winning a game they didn't want to win and then losing a coin toss they wanted to win. Yeah, everyone was thinking that the karmic justice was going to come for the Mavs in the form of them sliding out of the top 10 and thus losing their pick. Instead, it came in the form of them accidentally inviting Victor Wembanyama into the Southwest Division yeah. <laughs> by losing that game. Yeah. Although I suppose, sorry, you said that the coin toss was between the Spurs and the Rockets, right? It was, but it was... I, so the, he would have ended up in their division anyway. Fair, but um, it is still funny how the Mavs' incompetence and then later the tanking, the late season tanking that happened as a result of that incompetence did help a state rival end up with Victor Wembanyama, as I wrote in the piece. You know, man plans, God laughs. Well, the NBA teams plan and the basketball gods laugh. Uh, all right, Cash, we got a ton to get to today. <laughs> so <laughs> we got to move on from this. We got to talk about this game one between the Lakers and Nuggets. We have a whole other segment of this podcast that we actually recorded yesterday. And we didn't include a Lakers Nuggets preview in that because we decided basically instead of putting up an episode where we'd have a preview of this series and it would last for like a few hours before it got underway and kind of blew all of our projections and preview machinations to smithereens. Uh, we would just wait until we had a game one to react to. And now we can kind of draw on that in order to look forward as well. And this can kind of serve a little bit as our series preview. And, uh, that game, was a, that game was a barn burner, man. 132-126. Uh, the Nuggets came out like a house of fire, scored 72 points in the first half, were up by 18 going into the break, stretched that lead to as many as 21 points in the third quarter, but then wound up kind of having to white-knuckle it and survive down the stretch. What do you got, Cash? Biggest, biggest takeaway from that game one. All right, well, there, you know, there are a few tactical notes I have, and I'm sure we'll get into that. But if you're asking me just straight up the biggest takeaway from game one, like, full stop, and Nicole Jokic is the best player on the planet, like, it's really hard to stop him. Um, but the, the Lakers tried some really interesting things to do it, including putting Rui Hachimura on him, which 
in theory, you could, you could, you know, be like, what? Jokic is going to eat him alive. But for whatever reason, I mean, they, so they had uh, Rui on Jokic and then AD on Gordon. And, you know, Gordon standing in the dunker spot and not really being involved in pulling AD away from the basket the way the Warriors tried to do, helped AD um, excel as a back, like a, a helper when, when Rui was on Jokic. But whether it's because maybe it was just like a different look that Jokic wasn't expecting and and maybe, I don't know, I, I'm trying to figure out why Rui had some success in that defensive matchup. And I don't, and that's one thing that is going to be interesting for me to watch going forward because it's like, you know, is there something there physically that, that actually makes Rui a sneaky good candidate to guard Jokic? Or was it just he was caught a little off guard? It was a different look he wasn't expecting. And if he gets that look again, the Nuggets are going to figure it out get Jokic into the post, clear out, have him just absolutely obliterate Rui, and the Lakers will never be able to use that option again. I have a feeling, though, Ham, who's had a really good postseason, Darvin Ham, the Lakers head coach, is smart enough to know that the Nuggets are already planning on ways to exploit this Jokic on Rui thing. So that's one thing that that's really interesting for me. Yeah, you- I don't think that we're going to see the Lakers come out and start game two with Rui guarding right. Jokic necessarily. Right. I think they will... Maybe keep that one in their pocket and deploy it selectively. I do think the Nuggets are going to be ready for it. And really that comes down to figuring out what to do with Aaron Gordon in those situations. Because, I mean, there's a couple things to point to for sort of why it was successful. One is that Rue is just really strong. Like probably outside of LeBron, he is the strongest player on the Lakers, right? And... I think in terms of like, you know, we saw them try to use AD to guard Jokic in single coverage a few times. And Jokic just backed him down and basically put him in the basket. And he kind of can't really do that with Rui. Like Rui's stronger and also has a lower center of gravity. And this is something we've seen other teams do throughout the season, right? Like we saw the Sixers do this with PJ Tucker guarding Jokic and Embiid roaming off of Gordon. We saw the Raptors do it with OG. You know, so it's it's not entirely novel, but I you know I don't think Rui Hachimura is as good a defender as either Tucker or Ananobi. So I think that in theory, you know, that'll be an easier one for the Nuggets to solve if they see it again. But the biggest deterrent was just AD on the backside shading super aggressive help in Jokic's direction, and like you mentioned, with Gordon just kind of standing there in the dunker spot, not moving him around, it made it kind of easy for him to play that free safety role where he's showing that extra body to Jokic, but he feels comfortable in his ability to disrupt a potential pass to the dunker spot or make that recovery if he needed to. And so they need to get Gordon in motion, involved in screening action, you know, setting off ball screens really, I think would be probably the best way to do that, right? Like screening away for Murray or KCP or something like that. You know, that's how you have to account for AD roaming, you know, potentially even run some Jokic, Gordon pick and roll, things like that, or run inverted pick and roll, which I think, you know, when AD was guarding Jokic, one of the things that I thought was really successful for Denver was making AD navigate screens. They could do the same thing with Hachimura. And while that's going on, also have Gordon setting off-ball screens so AD can't just focus on mucking up a central action. You know what I'm saying? 
so I think that was the big thing. And I do think the Nuggets will come up with some counters for that. And I, like you, I'm very curious to see where that tactical chess match goes from here. Um, at the other end of the floor, big takeaway for me and a really encouraging one for the Lakers is I thought LeBron looked incredible. Like yeah. maybe the best he's looked all playoffs. And the way that that manifested was hunting Jamal Murray really, really worked. And I know Murray was sick. I think he had an ear infection. So possibly that had something to do with it. And like, man, for a guy who was dealing with an illness, he was unbelievable on offense. Dropped 31 points on, I don't know what it went up being, like 12 for 18 shooting. And uh, the way that he did it was really important. And we can touch on that quickly. But the, the defensive stuff, the Nuggets came out switching most of those inverted actions and just willing to live with Murray on LeBron. And sometimes the doubles were coming quickly and sometimes they weren't coming quickly enough. And in either situation, it didn't even really matter that much. Like LeBron was either just beasting Murray, put him in foul trouble. He wound up with five in the game or just driving to the rim and scoring on him without much issue or the doubles were coming and LeBron's making the right play and he's creating open threes by kicking out. And the Lakers had a a pretty nice shooting game. So did Denver, by the way, but the Lakers really shot the ball well in this game. Um, I think they have to figure out the answer for the, the Murray hunting, you know, maybe, maybe rejiggering the matchups is the way to do it. Like basically the switches were getting destroyed, but when Murray in the fourth quarter started trying to hedge and recover, Reeves was just flaring out for three, hit two big threes in the fourth quarter off of inverted pick and rolls where Murray was trying to hedge. And so I wonder if you'd rather just put Murray on Schroeder, who is much less dangerous as a shooter, and then you feel more comfortable doing the hedge and recover thing, and having KCP, who's frankly just a better defender than Murray, and you probably trust more to do the hedge and recover thing on Reeves. Even if you do want to switch it, selectively you probably trust him a little bit more on switches than you trust Murray even if maybe Murray is a little bit bigger yeah what I thought was interesting uh in down the stretch is yeah they went from switching to Murray hedging and recovering but Murray looked confused as to whether that was what they were doing a few times like there was a couple times where he responded looking like he was engaged in a switch and it looked like Aaron Gordon almost had to like shoo him away and remind him no we're not switching you have to go back and I don't know maybe it was you know just like he was sick he was tired but he really did look lost to say the least on a few of those late game instances where him and Gordon were defending a LeBron led pick and roll together where it was like he was getting turned around I don't know if you saw that one near the end where like he got turned around and then he was like backwards backtracking to try to recover there was another one he just took a a really weird route to try to recover back to Reeves so I mean obviously that's another thing the Nuggets just kind of have to iron out going into the next game not only just how they're going to defend those pick and rolls to start the game but also being sharp in executing that defensive game plan because by the end of it Murray especially just looked really confused or lost the other thing I'll say like that's not entirely on Murray either like Mm. he does need to be better at the recovery part of the hedge and recover. But in those scenarios, the Nuggets need to be ready to have a third guy running out at Reeves, or at least stunting toward Reeves. And it would be one thing if the Lakers were 
running empty side action where there wasn't a third guy there to rotate. But that wasn't the case. On both of those threes, actually, that Reeves hit in the fourth quarter, there was, in one case, one defender on that side of the floor, and that was MPJ. And in another case, there were actually two Lakers. Reeves flared out to the wing, and there were two Lakers in the corner. Their spacing was terrible. And still nobody rotated up to Reeves as Murray is struggling to recover out there. And in both cases, I think that's really on Porter Jr. uh, to make that rotation. Like, he, at the very least needs to be stunting in that direction. And in a worst-case scenario, like if Reeves, if Reeves is swinging the ball to Hachimura in the corner, I think you'd much rather live with that than you would with a wide-open wing three for probably the Lakers' best three-point shooter. So like that's not just on Murray. That's a, a schematic thing, and they need to be on a string with those rotations. So, you know, I, generally, I just thought like LeBron looking as good as he did was encouraging for the Lakers the mismatch hunting thing for them working as well as it did. AD obviously had a monster offensive game, dropped 40 points. And um, I think in spite of the loss, the fact that they hung tough, took Denver's best punch and came back and made it a close game is pretty encouraging for them. It it ended up a one possession game with what, a minute left? The Lakers cut it to three at one point. Yeah, really? And, and, And like they scored, right? Like they scored a ton. And the Lakers' offense has not been their strength this season, this postseason in particular. And what I was really looking to find out going into this series was, you know, we spent all this time, I think, worrying about Denver's pick-and-roll defense and Jokic in those actions and whether that was going to get exposed in the playoffs. And Phoenix seemed like the kind of team that was built to really exploit that. And there are reasons other than just the jump shot heavy stylings of Booker and KD for why it didn't work out that way. Like mainly that had to do with the supporting cast and how willingly Denver was helping off of those guys and got away with it. But I do wonder if we maybe over indexed on that from a concern perspective, you know, in thinking about Denver's defense, as opposed to thinking about, you know, matchup wise, what was going to be more dangerous for them was a team like the Lakers that lives in the paint and is built to exploit their lack of rim protection. Interesting. Because as much as, you know, like in the pick and roll, when they are forced to bring Jokic out, that opens stuff up on the backside. And a team with, you know, a, a, I guess more effective spread pick and roll than Phoenix with more shooting is still going to be able to exploit that in some sense. I'm interested in whether the Nuggets can slow down a Lakers team that can really score on the interior. Well, I guess we're about to find out. And I will say that kind of leads me to a point I wanted to make where I actually agree. Interesting enough, I agree with something Jeff Van Gundy said at the end of the broadcast last night. And usually if a broadcaster or someone said this, I would say it's hyperbole because at this point, time of the year in the playoffs like wins are obviously the most important thing like style points mean nothing there's no such thing as moral losses usually I'd say the statement Jeff Van Gundy made is like nah that doesn't really make sense but in this case I almost agree with him when he said that the Nuggets might have won the game but I think they're actually coming out of game one with more questions to answer as the series goes on than the Lakers are uh yeah I think that honestly is fair like I think by the end of that game the Lakers had made some tweaks that 
kind of started to make them look like the better team. Now, I'm not saying they are. I don't think they are. I, I like the Nuggets to win this series. But I do kind of agree in that I came away from that game feeling like, well, the Lakers figured some things out. And actually now, even though the Nuggets won, it's sort of on them to find the counters. Um, one thing, so with Murray, the reason he shook loose, or part of the reason anyway, I mean, the reason he shook loose is because he's an incredible shot maker and he made some incredible shots in this game. But the way that the Lakers are playing those pick and rolls, and really like the, it was more dribble handoffs than pick and rolls in this game, mostly DHO action with him and Jokic. AD is not leaving Jokic. Like they're trusting their guards to get over those screens. And AD is like, I am not peeling off. I'm not letting Jokic get a roll to the rim where somebody else is going to have to step up and help. And he's going to have a short roll pass or he's going to have a more favorable matchup. I'm staying stapled to Jokic and we'll live with what Murray does coming off of this screen. And what Murray did coming off of those screens was completely pick the Lakers apart for the first three quarters of the game. What the Lakers started to do after that, and part of this, I know like Murray seemed to run out of gas at the end of the game. And again, he was dealing with an illness. Okay. So caveats apply, but they started going under against him instead of going over. And there was one play where Murray hit a three after basically Schroeder went under two times, like Jokic screened and then rescreened and Murray hit a three. I think apart from that, they generally did a pretty good job staying in contact and not letting him get to those open pull-up jumpers that he was getting to coming off of the DHOs with Jokic when, you know, AD justifiably was saying, you know, I'm not leaving. So another one of those tactical battlegrounds that I'm interested to see, like, can that continue to work, you know, going under against a really dangerous shooter? Can Murray continue to make them pay for not leaving Jokic and not sending the screen defender out to help? And at any point, are the Lakers forced to adjust that and say, okay, we're getting burned too badly. AD, you got to try and at least get a hand up, like jump out to help a little bit and see if you can recover. Um, any, any other big takeaways from that game for you or any, anything else you're watching moving forward? Uh, no, I think I just about covered my thoughts. Do you have anything else? Um, I guess the last one I'll say is just, so when Denver was really rolling and when they ran out to that big lead, they were just getting so much early offense, right? Like they were dominating the Lakers in transition. And that's another key battleground that I'm going to be watching in this series. Like the Lakers are an offense and I know it kind of didn't really matter in this game because their half court offense was actually amazing, but generally they sort of rely on transition and the Nuggets weren't giving them a ton of opportunities to get out and run because they weren't committing a lot of live ball turnovers. Frankly, they weren't missing a lot of shots and many of the ones they did miss, they rebounded. Like their work on the offensive glass was a big story in this game too. And actually, if you're thinking about like the, the adjustment to put Rui on Jokic, I think a big downstream effect is like, not only is AD able to help off Gordon on the backside, but he's closer to the rim now and is better able to rebound the basketball. I thought that had a lot to do with it. Because in the first half, they just got destroyed yeah. on their own glass. Um, so whether the Lakers you know, can find their way to early offense in the way that Denver did early in that game, because if Denver continues to win that battleground, I think it could be a short series. Uh, you... I, I think the Lakers are going to be hard-pressed to score like that in the half court again. You mentioned that you don't think the Lakers are going to start the game with Rui on Jokic in game two. Mm. 
Do you think there's a possibility Rui might start in general or no? You think he only starts if they're starting him on Jokic, like from the opening tip? Uh, I don't think starting the three guards worked. And I understand why they don't want it to be Vando. Like, Vanderbilt might be their best option for defending Jamal Murray. But I understand their hesitancy and th- and, and thinking, honestly, if we put Vando out there, the Nuggets are probably going to, at least at some point, stash Jokic on him and almost let him off the hook at the defensive end in that way. Or, I mean, stash MPJ on Vando and have him roaming as a helper. And he's been really good at that throughout this postseason. So maybe Rui is the guy who makes sense, right? Who, whether he's defending Jokic or not, can still make an impact defensively because of his strength. You know, he's, I think, closer to being like an average defender overall than being, you know, an elite defender, but he can still defend. He has defensive utility. For sure. And he can keep the Nuggets honest at the offensive end. I just think starting the three guards, they were too small. And if they're not going to get high-end offensive production from D'Angelo Russell, then it's just not going to work out for them. Yeah, I Um, agree. But Reeves, on the other hand, I mean, he was just incredible and continues to... I mean, we even said this during the Memphis series where, like, yeah, he's probably going to get the Arenas max in the offseason. Four years, $99 And if that wasn't already clear, I think it's abundantly clear now that he is getting maxed out. You look at the big shots he hit last night throughout the playoffs. He also had, did he, I think he ended up with eight assists and no turnovers last night. Yeah. Like he's, he's incredible. A, he's, he's a incredible. really good NBA guard and he is, yeah. I think, 23 and getting better. Yeah. Like defends, can shoot, can yeah. make plays for others, like can get to the rim. Obviously, he gets, uh, draws fouls like few guys in the league. Like there are a lot of reasons why and a lot of evidence to suggest like he's going to be a really good player for a long time. The one thing I would say, and this doesn't impact anything that we just mentioned, but I do think he was one of the bigger offenders in terms of the guards that struggled navigating those screens on Murray early on. Like he was one of them that was not doing a very good job getting over and staying in contact, but lots of meat on the bone there uh, moving forward in this series. And I just can't wait for game two. We also have game one of Heat Celtics tonight. Uh, We're going to preview that later in the episode. And we're also going to talk about uh, some teams that are heading home and look ahead to their very interesting off seasons and the decisions that lie ahead. So we're going to kick it to break. And when we come back, we will have the rest of this episode that we recorded yesterday. And uh, that's going to be it for us this week. I'm off the rest of the week. I'm actually going to New York for my sister's wedding. So uh, we... Won't talk to you until uh, early next week when these series will be well underway, and I'm sure we will have a ton of thoughts and things to catch up on. But let's kick it to break, and we'll be back on the other side. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. You can also check out the Scores Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right, Wolfon, as promised, we have a lot of drama to get to when it comes to some of the teams that have been eliminated 
from the playoffs. Uh, and then also we will look ahead to the East finals as well. Two teams that have not been eliminated and do not have any earth shattering drama going on yet. Yeah, that, that's a fair point. It is the NBA. Once they're eliminated, I'm sure the drama will come. Are we going to start with the Sixers here? I mean, I don't know. Do you, like, do you have any thoughts that we didn't mention two months ago when it comes to John Morant? Because he's going to be, pro- he might miss like a quarter of the season. I don't know if you have thoughts there. If you want to get into that, we definitely have to talk Doc Rivers and the Sixers. We can probably yeah. talk a little Suns. I don't know if you want to talk Warriors. There, there's a lot of stuff we can get to. I don't know. What is there really to say? It's, it's really disappointing. And I think to go back to the conversation we had at the time, I think, you know, we, we talked about how there had been this whole conversation about how John needs better influences around him or whatever, like needs to cut certain people out of his circle. And you and I, I think we're both on the same page at the time saying like, you know, Jaw has agency here, you know, like he's capable of making his own decisions or should be. And I think this is just a reflection of that, right? Like he's still at the end of the day, like in control of his life and it, it, it's disappointing to to see him continuing to go down this road and make these kinds of decisions. I don't, yeah, I don't really have anything more to say than that. I, I like watching John Morant play basketball and I would like to be able to continue doing that. And, you know, his off-court behavior, unfortunately, is going to make that more of a challenge. So, yeah. Like some people have made the point about how there is a clear societal hypocrisy going on because... You know, there are politicians that pose for pictures with guns and especially in red states actually use it to their advantage, right? And I I completely understand that point. The only thing I'd say to that is John Morant's not running for office. He's an NBA player, a celebrity, a pro athlete with a contract and with endorsements and dealing with rules that he very much knows exist because he literally got punished for this exact same thing two or three months ago. So it's like, I'm not downplaying that that hypocrisy exists, but I'm also not going to let Jaw off the hook because of it, because he knows what the situation is. He was literally just punished for it and still decided to pull a gown out on an Instagram live stream again. So at this point, it's like, I'm, I'm with you. Obviously, like, I want to see Jaw play basketball. I think it's great. I don't, as I said two months ago, I don't want to see this guy mess up like career and financial well-being that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. But the bigger story still is here that like aside from that professional life that he could ruin especially now that it's going to be the second strike and you're looking at probably like a quarter of the season he might miss at best that's all he's messing up at worst again he's putting himself and others in a very dangerous situation that as i said a couple months ago it can end just as badly for him you know as it does for much less famous and fortunate people every day so what else is there to say other than we hope he somehow figures it out and learns from this in ways he didn't learn two months ago. But like this, this is obviously not the last we've heard of it or are going to talk about it because there's going to be a, a, a much longer suspension coming. Nike might like, I don't know, man, I, I can't see Nike sticking with him now. Powerade, yeah. he, uh, Powerade launched the biggest campaign they've ever had for an athlete with Jaw. I can't see that going on. We'll have to wait and see. Well, I'll just quickly say, like, in terms of the, the hypocrisy that you're mentioning, I mean, I, I fully agree. And I will also say, I don't like seeing John Morant brandish firearms. Like, I generally am, like, very anti-gun. But in spite of, like, how uneasily that sits with me, like, I'm still more disconcerted by 
stuff like him beating the shit out of a teenager and like threatening a mall security guard and things like that. But I also recognize that like in ter- like like there's a connection between that stuff right. and obviously what it demonstrates about him just like not really caring and not taking seriously what's going on and how like the the potential consequences of all of these things that he's doing. But I I mean, I think I'm ultimately more put off by the reported incidents and the behavior, you know? Yeah. That's the thing. He's not just taking random pictures with guns. He's waving it around in clubs and cars on live streams after reports emerged about multiple instances of him and people in his group threatening others with guns. And he literally just got suspended for this very thing a few months ago. But yeah, I mean, I I think we can leave that there. Like I said, unfortunately, this is not the last. We will be addressing it because there's obviously more that's going to come. But for now, I think we can move on to something that's still, you know, under the category of NBA drama, but a much more basketball related one. And that is the demise of Doc Rivers in Philadelphia and the demise of the 2022-23 Philadelphia 76ers in perhaps not unsurprising fashion. You know I'm, you know, I'm I'm ready to cook with with some thoughts on this Sixers team, but I am curious to hear your thoughts about how it all went wrong. I mean, look, we sat here what a week ago when they were up 3-2 talking about you know how this is their moment even if they lose game six not that we, yeah, we, we both, both still predicted pick- we both predicted yeah. that the celtics were going to come back and win in seven though yeah. i also don't think all eliminations and all game seven losses are created equal yes and I, that that's a really important consideration obviously in all of this and I, I think you know it makes it difficult for me to characterize the sixers season the sixers postseason james harden's postseason I don't know what to make of it all because you have a series in which James Harden literally had his two best and potentially most consequential playoff performances ever. And then you have in that same series, if you take the other five games combined, he averaged 13.4 points on 25.4% shooting, 15.4% from three-point range. Just... Nothing in the middle, nothing in between. I guess you could say game five was kind of somewhere in the middle where I thought he actually played a, a really solid game in that in that game five. Like wasn't the explosive scorer that he was in games one and four, but great job facilitating. You know, I think he only took eight shots in that game, but he got to the free throw line, finished with 17 and 10. Sixers won going away. Uh, so he had one game, I guess, that was kind of in the middle and then four absolute epic stinkers. And... I think the ones in game six and seven were the most galling, not just because of the stakes, but because of the way that the Celtics opted to tweak their pick and roll coverage in a way that essentially put the onus on Harden to figure it out. Like they said, we're going to take away Embiid's roles, like keep you know, the screen defender essentially attached to Embiid so that he's not getting those short roll looks. You can't make the pocket pass. At least you can't make it as easily as you've been making it. And that's like gifting Harden, basically. Like the screen defender is not helping on Harden. Or if they are, they're only doing it for like a half a second. And apart from that, Harden can stroll into the middle of the floor. Then it's like the help is coming from the back line. A lot of times it's coming from the strong side. They're mixing it up a bit to keep him on his toes. 
but the onus is on him to figure it out. Whether it's like a, a passing read that's going, you know, skip to the weak side, pass to the strong side, get to your floater, challenge them at the rim. And he couldn't figure it out. Like he, I think, kind of melted into a puddle of passivity and indecision and was just completely flummoxed. And that, like, like that is what is really concerning. And if we're looking ahead to like the big question, I think, hovering over this team, now that the Doc Rivers question has been answered, it's like, is Harden going to be back? Does he want to be back? Do the Sixers want him back? The fact that, like, we we mentioned this coming into the series, right? When we were watching him in the Brooklyn series and we we're like, okay, they, they're, they're playing well. You know, Embiid is getting these, like, double and triple teams thrown at him and the team is sort of responding. They're figuring out how to play out of that. But Harden's interior scoring, like, the extent to which it's fallen off is probably going to become a problem as they get deeper in the playoffs even after those volcanic performances that he had in games one and four, or maybe it was just after game one that we talked about it, but we mentioned, right? Like it's still mostly jump shots. It was vintage Harden production, but not vintage Harden performance in how he went about getting like, right. Filling this. So to that point, cash James Harden at the rim in the playoffs. Do you, I don't know if you know this off the top of your head, but I do not. Can you hazard a guess? as to what he shot at the rim in the playoffs. Just guess. Well, the, the fact you're asking me makes me think it's going to be wretched. So I'm going to say 45%. He would have been thrilled to have shot 45% at the so rim in the playoffs. 30 38%? 38%. Oh my the God. worst, the worst of any player to have attempted more than seven shots in the restricted area. Dude, what's league average at the rim? Like 58, 60%? Like- For a... Point guard, it's probably, yeah, like high 50s, maybe yeah. low 60s. For like, I mean, Harden in his career has basically been, you know, up until this season, this season he was at 57%, which was his lowest since his rookie season. 57%. And that was already way down from his career standard, right? So that should give you a, a, an understanding of how poorly. He was able to score at the basket in the playoffs, and that really became an issue when the Celtics started playing him in such a way that basically invited him to drive and challenged him to score inside, and he couldn't do it. And of course, the jump shooting dried up as well. Like, that was a big part of it. But man, it just, I I don't know where that leaves you, right? It's like he had these two heroic performances that were basically the biggest reason that this series went to seven games to begin with, right? Mm -hmm. And Coming into the series, if you'd said Embiid is going to miss game one with this knee injury and then is probably going to be hindered for the rest of the series after he comes back and the Sixers are still going to push it to seven, I think you would have said, wow, that's a success. But to your point, you know, the nature of how it unfolded, them having a chance to close it out at home, blowing that chance with a putrid offensive performance, Top down, just thirteen. I guess apart from Tyrese Maxey, thirteen points in the fourth quarter. Awful in Game Six, and what was going into the fourth quarter a one possession game with them having a chance. You know, as I said last week, to get to the conference finals for the first time in twenty two years, the first time in the Embiid era, to end up in a situation where they would have had home court advantage for the rest of the playoffs, like, and they scored thirteen points in the fourth quarter. And if you remember, I think 
Oh, no, maybe it was the game before in game five when PJ Tucker was kind of like in Embiid's face and they asked him about him after. And I think he said something about like sometimes he just needs to be like reminded to dominate or like so- something along those lines. And it was like, even it, look it, on the Harden point, I'm with you in that the Celtics played it perfectly because they dared Harden to do something that it, I don't think he can do anymore. And in general, like, even when you talk about Embiid, and I'm going to talk about Embiid, like Al Horford obviously deserves a lot of credit. I think Embiid was 3 of 16 when defended by Horford, according to ESPN's tracking data. The Celtics as a whole were awesome. The game plan was great. Jason Tatum authored one of the great playoff performances, Game 7 performances we'll ever see. All of that is valid. In the case of Harden, I would connect his putrid performance to the Celtics game plan and his own limitations more if I hadn't seen him be that passive in elimination games in the past, even at the height of his powers. And so I do think, yes, this like the Celtics defense obviously deserves some of the credit. Um, you know, his own physical limitations at this point of his career deserve, you know, part of the blame, I guess, as well. But at a certain point, like a pattern emerges. And with Harden, again, even when he was at the peak of his powers, not in general in the playoffs, he was actually overall a good playoff performer. But when it came to like his team facing elimination games, even when it seemed like they should, like he just never seemed to be in the same. And I know I'm not in his head, but he didn't seem to be in the same mind space when you watched him attack on the court. Like he looked half checked out and that was in Houston in these games. And now when he doesn't have to even be the guy and yeah, like the physical limitations are there and whatever, like I just, it's hard for me to say, well, that's why when I've seen him do it, and play like this, even when he was at the peak of his power. And by the way, to answer your question about like, you know, where this kind of leaves them with Harden, to be blunt, I think this leaves them in a lose-lose situation because you pay up to keep Harden and, you know, make him whole for sacrificing for the greater good the way he did on his um, last summer, two summer, whenever the hell it was. And it's like, well, now you're paying a fading star in clear decline who's entering his mid-30s for at least the next couple of years. But the alternative is, you lose him as a capped out team that will not really have the ability to replace his production no matter how diminished it is. So I I feel like there, unless there's a team out there that's willing to overpay for Harden in a sign-in trade, I have a hard time seeing how the Sixers come out of this Harden situation this summer as winners. I suppose that there's a scenario in which they work out Another kind of short-term deal, maybe something akin to like the one plus one Harden signed last offseason or a two plus one or something like that. I feel like that is mutually beneficial. Harden, these reports about Houston won't go away. He clearly has his heart set on returning there at some point in time. I'm sitting here looking at it and like, I just, maybe not yet you still have some good basketball left in you. And I think if you are looking, you know, or if he is looking for some kind of postseason redemption, which maybe he's not, maybe he genuinely doesn't care. He just wants to get back to Houston and spend the kind of twilight of his career there because he loves the city, has a connection to the fans and the organization. And that's all that matters. But if he is thinking like, I need to, you know, get back in the lab, figure this stuff out, redeem myself. Philly is still going to be the best place for him to do that. And kicking the can down the road a couple years and being like, let me, let me give this another go. Let's go a couple more years. 
see if we can get over the hump, and Houston will still be there for me when I need to get back. And I think that would work out for the Sixers, too, in the sense that if Harden walks, they can't replace him. So that's just, I mean, he's just out the door, and that's a disaster. It is. Like, it, you, you might be a fan who's like, just get this guy off of my team, get this stench away from the Philadelphia 76ers organization. I don't care, but they need him. They really do. And it's going to be an interesting offseason for them because Tyrese Maxey is going to be extension eligible. And if they sign him, you know, if they, they like max him out, which I think he's made a strong case that he should be, if not totally maxed out, then close to it. Like at the very least, I would say the baseline for what he should be looking at is like what Jordan Poole and Tyler Hero got last offseason, right? Like four years, 140 million. Only with the escalating cap, you're probably looking at a bigger deal than that. And also, I frankly He's think Maxi has proven himself to be a better player, especially in the postseason, than either of those two guys. So if they extend him, that deal is going to kick in at the exact same time that Tobias Harris's deal comes off of the books. So it's not even like they would necessarily have the ability to replace Harden next season. Like they're and like you're thinking about Embiid and like I know his contract run, runs through I think at least 2026 right, but you you got to assume that he's going to start to get antsy at some point. So I don't think taking any kind of a short term step back is really an option for them. Yeah, I feel like a, a kind of reasonable two year deal, something like that. I think you could look at that and say that that is still a win for the Sixers. Even if you're like, you know, zooming way out and looking at the situation and being like, man, this is starting to feel like a dead end. I don't know. You Like eventually you got to hope that you're going to be able to, to break through that wall. And maybe, maybe it's just a question of Maxi has another level to, to get up to. Right. And maybe he can do that next season while Harden is still basically what he was this year. And Embiid is still, in his prime, like you look around the Eastern Conference and it's like, okay, the Celtics probably aren't going anywhere, but are the Bucks maybe inching toward the end of their contending cycle? You know, are the Heat gonna be able to keep getting away with this cash? Are are the Cavs, who are kind of like the one young up and coming team that might be on the cusp of breaking through into like the inner circle of East contenders, like are they just fatally flawed and like they're never really going to get there? You know, are the Knicks like a team that's really going to scare you for well, next year or, or like following? I, I'm just like thinking about it and wondering what the impact, like I, I understand like a lot of the impediments to the Sixers have been their inability to get out of their own way in the past. But I just, I, I just don't really see a reason why they couldn't ultimately, I mean, at least get to the conference finals. Maybe not win a championship, but like... I see a big reason why. A 7-foot, 280-pound reason why. So we're going to do this then. Is there I, a heart transplant like, that's about to take place between now and the next? <laughs> because if not... To, to close off that conversation, I think... I don't think it's necessarily lose-lose. I think if they can bring back Harden on a short-term deal, in spite of the way that the season ended and his season ended... I still think I would look at that as a win Fair. for Philly. And Fair. I don't know. I think we should just we should always keep the big picture in, in mind. And I, I know 
recency bias is a thing. And I know there's a history with Harden in elimination games. And Embiid. And Embiid. That would make you feel like this is specific to them and it's specific to these types of situations. Where normally I would say, let's just imagine that the series played out in such a way that like Harden's game one actually happened in game six. You know, and it was a performance that like saved their season and allowed them to push it to game seven. Would we be thinking about all this differently? You know, if that perhaps, perhaps because then he would have broken the mold of his usual elimination game. Like that would have been them facing elimination if that was the case. It would have been, but like on the whole, like the fact that he did that in game one and they won that game without Embiid. It's huge. The fact that he basically did it again in game four. And as a result, they went to two, two instead of being down three, one is equally important, right? Like that still allowed the series to get to where it got to. That still matters. And I talk about this stuff all the time. I'm sure our listeners are like tired of hearing me say it, but like, just think about how close the, the Sixers actually were to winning that game six, right? Like they had, I think they were up by five with like less than a minute to go in the third quarter of that game. Like they, it was back and forth for the entire fourth game pretty six. much. Game six, yeah. Yeah, they were they were up three going in with like four minutes and 20 seconds left in the game. And, and until Tatum like hit yep. four threes in a row basically, right? Mm-hmm. And before Tatum hit four threes in a row, he was what, like one for 13 yeah, he was from the field. Yeah. And yeah, he hit that barrage of threes to redeem himself and help them win that game down the stretch. But if Philly had just had like a normal offensive game, if DeAnthony Melton hadn't clanked like five wide open threes. If Joel Embiid wanted the ball down the stretch. Yeah, like any number. And Boston's defense deserves credit for that. I'm just saying the Sixers could have had a better shooting game and they could have won that game six. And then Tatum is going into the offseason with all these questions about whether he has what it takes to like lead, even though we saw him like lead the Celtics to the finals last year, we know, we know that that's what would have dominated the off season conversation about the Celtics, right? Fair. And but instead, again, but as you said, at least we have seen him do it before, but it, I'm just saying it doesn't matter. That's, that's what would have happened. Not on this show. <laughs> True. But I'm just saying it's like, instead, because the Sixers couldn't hit a shot, and couldn't execute their offense down the stretch of that game six, it goes back to Boston for a game seven, and Tatum gets to have this legacy-defining performance where he breaks the two-week-old game seven record with 51 points, one-upping Steph Curry. And, I mean, like it's just, I, I always say this, like these things can really turn on a dime. And so to build out these sweeping big picture narratives or like have players legacy is defined by these small samples is kind of dangerous sometimes, but to segue us into the point that I know you want to make when it is a recurring thing, it makes it more difficult to look past it and kind of treat it as a, you know, a one-off or something that we shouldn't, you know, apply to future scenarios. Yes. Listen, you know, I'll I'll gladly admit when, a player, a team, whatever proves me wrong. You know, just, I, I can dish it, but I can also take it. I can call out clowns, but I'm also happy to put on the oversized red shoes and make up when appropriate. Unfortunately for 76ers fans, holy hell was I right about this team and largely its two lead stars. Now, last week, again, as we noted, I, I we talked about it here. I wrote about it in a column that coming back to Philly up 3-2 in this series with a chance to slay a lot of demons in either game six or game seven, the playoff bracket breaking right for them, all of this. I said, this was their moment. And this was 
the team's defining opportunity of the Embiid era. And what do they do? They absolutely bottle it. Now, of course, I also wrote in that column last week and said here last week that now should those Sixers lose game six, they and Embiid and Harden especially would still need to prove themselves with their backs against the wall, given their track record in elimination games specifically. And you'll remember that I, you know, half jokingly said all season in talking about these Sixers that I thought they had a legit championship ceiling, you know, as long as they don't have to face elimination because we know how Embiid and Harden would respond to that. Well, 15 points and eight rebounds on five of 18 shooting with one assist and four very predictable turnovers for Joel Embiid. And again, you know, if you've been listening the last 15 minutes, you know I've already given Horford and the Celtics D and the game plan credit. It's not like I'm saying they had nothing to do with it, but those are the facts for Embiid. Harden, nine points on three of 11 shooting and was outscored by P.J. Tucker in a 24-point blowout loss that saw Tatum erupt for 51. Now, we know Harden shies away from the pressure of elimination games. Last year, he took nine shots in 43 minutes. Say the line, Cash. Say the line. When the going gets tough, James Harden gets lost. Woo! Let's go! (laughs) Man. Again, nine shots in 43 minutes of game six against the Heat last year. I already mentioned, even in Houston, he was often far too passive in such games, often appeared checked out. And then Embiid, like, let's be straight here. He is an absolute pumpkin in these games. Nine career games when facing elimination, Joel Embiid has shot 38.8% from the field while committing 41 turnovers against just 18 assists. In those nine career elimination games, he has never had one game with more assists. He has had a below average effective field goal percentage, below league average for that playoff effective field goal percentage in five of his six playoff runs. His 9.4 points per game drop off between the regular season and playoffs this year was the biggest drop off ever for that season's MVP. Again, credit Horford, credit the Celtics, blah, blah, blah. (laughs) Embiid had a knee injury that obviously hampered him. Not disputing that, especially I would say on defense when he was moving horribly on the end of the court that is supposed to be, you know, the separating factor between him and let's say some other MVP candidates who Joel Embiid was very happy to take playful jabs at because of their defense this season. Those excuses would mean more to me. The injuries, the Celtics defense, all of that. If this wasn't the same damn story every damn year. So whether it's the horribly timed injuries that happen every year around this time or his half-assed sulking through elimination games the second his team deals with some sort of adversity, whatever it is, all the evidence to this point suggests over nine career elimination games over the span of six years or five years, whatever it's been, all the evidence suggests that for as great a player as Joel Embiid is, he is not built to withstand the physical toll a championship run would require and seemingly doesn't have it between the ears to mentally lead a team into battle when the chips are down and it's playing for its life. Bet on Joel Embiid to be in the MVP discussion again next year because he's that good. But also bet on him folding like a cheap tent when his team needs him most and their backs are against the wall and they're facing elimination. All of this cost Doc Rivers his job. And yeah, I'm not the biggest Doc Rivers fan, but I will say, by the way, I actually thought he and his staff did all they could in the Celtics series. They switched up the coverages on Tatum, didn't work. They tried to get Embiid the ball in different spots in game seven, didn't work. They've had Brett Brown, they've had Doc Rivers, they are going to have a third coach now. Unless that, unless this new coach 
can clear whatever mental hurdles exist that prevent Joel Embiid from performing when the Sixers need him most in the playoffs, they're not going to have any more success than Brett Brown or Doc Rivers did. You know, the Joel Embiid era has had how many front office guys now? And again, those guys have, you know, like you look at a Colangelo or a brand, it's understandable why those guys lost their jobs, but they've had four different front office executives, like top guys in the Joel Embiid era. They're going to have a third coach now. They have shuffled stars and supporting role players in and out. The result has remained the same. And when it comes to Joel Embiid, his performance in these situations has largely remained the same. So like at what point do we, and again, it's that's not me saying, well, they got to give up on him and trade him. I understand that their best chance is still trying to build around him. But at what point do we admit that maybe this guy is just not built for this? I'm not there yet. But here's what I'll say, because I know we get to this point every year and the injury excuse is always there. And I just feel like at this point, it's not that it's not valid. It's just that it doesn't matter because if he's going to be injured every postseason and that's the reason that he is just going to have a performance that is well below the standard that he set for himself in the regular season. Whether that's because you feel like he doesn't have it between the ears, you know, and can't get it done in a big spot, or whether it's because he is physically compromised, every shred of precedent that there is suggests that that's what's going to happen. So it doesn't matter that it's because he's physically hobbled, you know, because ultimately, if we're projecting forward, there's no reason to think that it's going to be any different. Like, and we, we have to see the evidence that it can be different in order to actually believe it. So I don't believe that it's like some psychological failing on his part or for whatever reason, he's incapable of getting it done, you know, leading his team to the conference finals. Like he's just destined to fail in the second round year after year. I don't believe that, but I also can't keep making excuses for him and saying, well, like eventually he's just going to have a healthy playoff run and he's going to do it. And we're going to see the full scope of what he's capable of on the biggest stage. I have to see it to believe it at this point. Like yeah. he, like, you know, he has to prove that he can get through a postseason healthy because whether or not that is what is causing him to have this like significant drop off from regular season to playoffs, that's what keeps happening. And so until further notice, I have to assume that that's what's going to keep happening. Yeah. And dude, like you talk about, you know, you're still believing, obviously, he can get to the conference finals. You're not like there's nothing written in stone that he has to keep failing in the second round. Like, like that's just one more round. His teams need to win nine more games in the playoffs than they ever have before to get to the ultimate promise line. And I'm not saying, oh, he has to win a title or he's a failure because we know there's been great players who haven't won and it's not because they are some failures, but there are certain failings in his performances that mm-hmm. would make it different than say some other great players who haven't won so you mentioned uh, a a while back that you want to see the nba reseed the second round yeah so let's just assume that that had happened this year and that the sixers had played the knicks in the second round instead of boston we can both agree that they probably beat the knicks right yep So let's say that happens and let's say that this series is actually the conference finals and they just lost in game seven of the conference finals. But the exact same way, like the series went the exact same way. The series went the exact same way, but it's the conference finals instead of the second round. Does any of this read differently to you? No, no, it wouldn't because I think it would be very obvious that they should beat the Knicks 
and not even that they should not that they should have beaten the Celtics, but again, it's the way they went out in a year that I thought was their best chance to win a title so far in the Embiid era. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it would have been nice that they finally broke the conference finals drought. And if you had just told me going into it, they'll go seven games with the Celtics and lose, I'd be like, well, that sounds about right. But then the way it unfolded still would have had me saying that nothing has changed. So what do you think they should do with Harden? I'm with you. I think they should hope that they can keep him on like a short bridge type deal because they can't replace him. Yeah. But they like they can't give him, and I guess they won't have to. I don't know, man. Like if Houston's actually willing... Again, I don't know why they would be, but clearly, like this, this stuff is out there. If Houston's willing to say give him like a longer term deal that pays him more than what we think he's worth worth at this stage of his career, like I don't know then if the Sixers should actually keep him. It's it's tough because, like, and this is why I say it's kind of a lose lose unless they can definitely get him on a short deal. It's hard for me to see them winning this summer when it comes to the yeah. Harden situation. Uh, that's kind of where I'm at. Like, not that I, I've said before, and I still feel like if they can get him on a on a bridge type deal that that's a win but i just i don't know what to do with all this because he was perfect for them in so many ways he was exactly the kind of point guard that they've been looking for all these years right like he made the game so much easier for Embiid he's a a big part of the reason Embiid won MVP this year he allowed him to reorient his game around short roll catches, and generally just like on-the-move catches, right? Where he didn't have to create everything for himself. He was able to move a little bit away from the very arduous post-up heavy style he was playing before, where a lot of it was stationary. Now he's getting like easier catches in spots that he's comfortable in. Like it contributed majorly, I think, to the season that Embiid had. But I don't know. I guess I'm left feeling like, does it matter if they go out in the same fashion at the same stage of the playoffs, you know, with all of this baggage and like and Harden's limitations now as a scorer and specifically an interior scorer like if they're going to run into these same issues in the playoffs which is hard to feel like they're not going to given that those limitations are going to be present and Harden's just getting older and Embiid his body might be a ticking time bomb as much as I feel like he's kind of a perfect fit and actually adapted his games in ways that made him like almost perfect complementary offensive player to Embiid I'm left feeling like, I don't know what's going to be different. If they couldn't get it done this year, what what is there to make me think that they're going to be able to get it done next year or the year after that? Like, it's I, a tough spot for I sure. I think this was but. the year, man. I think this this was the year. And again, obviously, like, yeah, yeah it's easy to no, say that, that year. That, that year they had played the Hawks in the second round was. Yeah, I mean, I guess you can say that. Although I don't know, they they would have beat Milwaukee that season, but. With Giannis, I mean, I guess there's nothing to say that he would have gotten injured if they'd, whatever. Right. doesn't matter. We're right, not going yeah, yeah. down but, this road. But no, but to your point, that is another year where it seemed like the bracket broke right for them yeah. and they bottled it again. <laughs> and beat eight turnovers, I and, think, in that game seven. Yes, yes. And that was a franchise-altering loss that, you know, with the Ben Simmons pass instead of the layup or dunk that led to the end of the Ben Simmons era, eventually led to the trade for James Harden again. Yeah, You know, a better fitting superstar or star beside it, Joel Embiid. And yet two years later, we're having the exact same conversation. Yeah. All right. I think that's enough Sixers talk. I like, look, the you know, there are other teams that have been eliminated, but the Knicks, I think we kind of talked already last week or two weeks ago, even when I talked about the Randall and Barrett stuff. The Warriors, I feel like we can get into, you know, as the offseason continues and whether this is the end of this team and this the era of this specific Warriors team 
The Suns, even we can talk definitely as the offseason unfolds because they're obviously going to do a lot this offseason one way or another. But quickly before we touch on the East Finals, is there any overarching thing about the Suns that you thought about as their season was coming to an end in embarrassing fashion in that one, like in game six that you that we haven't already covered and that, you know, they weren't necessarily built to win in ways you'd assume with two superstars because of the shot profile, because of the stunning lack of depth, because of the injury history of a guy like Chris Paul and even a KD, but Chris Paul, especially in the playoffs, like, and all those things ended up coming back to bite them. Yeah. I mean, we, it's all the things that we talked about from the moment they made the KD trade, where I think we both felt pretty confident they were going to be a dangerous playoff team. And they showed the reasons that they were a dangerous playoff team, just with the sheer shot-making ability of Booker and KD. But too many of the potential pitfalls that we laid out did come back to bite them. And the biggest one was just, they were very top-heavy. And then they lost one of their three best players. And then they lost their fourth best player. And... I, I like that. That is sort of what it came down to to me. And I like the, you know the Monty Williams firing. It's like I'm, I was a little bit surprised by that, and maybe I shouldn't have been, just given all the reporting that had been there uh, out there about Ishbia and like the way that new owners tend to want to come in and like make their imprint. And obviously Ishbia did that by pushing for the KD trade in the first place. And so maybe it's inevitable that after the team sort of failed to live up to expectations or whatever his expectations for the team might have been, that he would be even more inclined to want to like get one of his own guys in there and sort of clean house. But I, I just felt like, I don't know. I, I don't feel like much of that loss really fell on Monty Williams. And I know there's like the, you know, carryover effect from the way that they went out against Dallas last year. And maybe that factored into it, but it just felt to me like he deserved an off season with a team, I guess, that was like actually able to be filled out around those two guys in a way that made a little bit more sense and like give him more time to figure out how to best utilize those two guys. Right. It was all very hastily thrown together. KD played eight games with them in the regular season. Like, I don't know. It's just kind of an unfair expectation. I think, especially when the team they went up against was a team that thrives on continuity, you know, that's been playing together for a really long time. And it was a very, very good team, you know, like much deeper and, was just ultimately better by the end of that series, like straight up better team. And maybe you could say the Suns shouldn't have lost in the embarrassing fashion that they did at home, like basically getting 30 pieced. But I don't know. I, I, that was a little surprising to me. Yeah, I agree. And I don't think Monty necessarily should have been the one to wear this. I agree with the fact that, you know, they were ultimately undone for all of the reasons that we said they might be undone uh, even after the KD trade. And there's obviously no shame in losing that game or that series, given all the things that were going against them. Like with CP out, Aiton out. I mean, Aiton, how we can do an episode just on Aiton at some point this offseason, because good Lord. But, um, you know, Aiton was out, CP was out. They already had the depth issues. They were down three. Like losing that game and losing that series, no shame in it. But yeah, I do think given how sad they went out in game seven at home last year as the number one overall seed, there is some carryover effect. And then to see them so listless, again in an elimination game at home even if they you know probably should have lost it anyway i do think and like i wrote about this last week too it's not look it's not on book and kd because those guys and book especially you know was the reason that series even got to that point but i do think there's a certain element of it is like you trade mikhail bridges cam johnson and control of up to five first round picks for kevin freaking durant you don't do it to end up in a situation where 
you are hopeless in a home elimination game with KD and Booker both in the lineup. Like you can lose that game, but I feel like given the stakes and given what they gave up and given the two stars they still had in the lineup, you can lose that game, but you can't lose it that way. You know? And I do think that probably contributed. Not that that's Monty Williams' fault, but I do think that probably contributed to it. Because like at some point, Devin Booker on his own, but even then you have Devin Booker and Kevin Durant, your team should be able to leave even in defeat with their heads held high. And I don't think the Suns have been able to do that in either of the last two seasons. And I yeah, can tell I just, just think... by your facial reaction that <laughs> you don't agree with that. No, look, I mean, I think the the like Chris Paul injury risk and the the depth issues that were already present, like that was built into the risk that they took in making that KD yeah. trade. And we talked about that. It's like, and, that's... And, sorry, but even just KD only ended up playing eight games, also part of the built-in risk because the guys averaged exactly. like 33 missed games per season in the three years since returning from an Achilles injury. And he wound up, you know, by the end of the series looking really run down, didn't seem to have his legs, couldn't get comfortable in the middle of the floor. A big part of that was that the Nuggets were like swarming him and he rightly didn't really trust any of the team's role players to knock down shots or make plays with the ball. He'd been playing, you know, 44 minutes a game in the series up to that point. Like all of those chickens came home to roost. This is the off season that's going to ultimately, I think, define the success or failure of the KD trade, right? A full transaction cycle to try and build out the roster around KD and Booker and make it make a little bit more sense. I don't think it was imperative that they won a championship this season. Agreed. And I don't, I'm not going to say like, oh, you just can't lose that game that way because looking at it on paper and what the Suns had available to them and what they were up against, I think they very well could oh, man, lose with, that game in that Kevin way. Booker and did. And Kevin and, Durant in the lineup. But like, okay, what I just, what are they really supposed to do? Like they carried that team carried them to two home wins that honestly they probably shouldn't have gotten like really that they won that game on the strength of ridiculous shot making from two guys and you know occasionally like Landry Shamit and Terrence Ross who are not the type of guys that you want to be relying on in a high stakes playoff series Mm -hmm. so I'm not saying it's going to be easy for them to just like in one offseason figure out how to sort of restructure the roster, make an Aiton trade, make a Chris Paul trade, whatever. Like they got a lot of work to do and they may well flop again next year as a result of the challenge of building out their depth and having, you know, one of their cornerstone players who they are relying on so greatly be, you know, a a 35 year old with now a, a really long list of lower body injuries in the last few years alone. But that's, you know, the, this is the risk they took. And uh, yeah, now they, they sort of just have to figure out what they want the rest of the roster to look like, I guess. Uh, you want to talk about a couple teams that are still playing basketball and are going to play for the right to get to the NBA Finals and are going to match up in the Eastern Conference Finals for the second straight year and for the third time in four years. Call it the rubber match in a best of three series of series. The Boston Celtics yes. and the Miami Heat. I think the Celtics are the better team with more overall talent, more shot-creating and shot-making talent, with a better defense and with home-court advantage. They should win this series, but the world should have learned by now to never doubt playoff Jimmy and Eric Spolstra, who might be able to coach circles around Joe Mazzula and company. 
you show it to me on paper and I say, Celtics in like five, but you know I'm as big a believer in Heat culture as one can be without actually being a Heat fan. So I almost want to say this is going seven and it's a toss-up. Do you have more analytical thoughts than that? I do, of course, but like I ultimately land in kind of the same place that you do where I'm like, I can try and game this out in any number of ways. I can look at it on paper. I can look at the numbers or the matchups or the X's and O's and come away feeling like, yeah, Boston is a much better team. They should have more ways and better ways to defend Miami than vice versa. They are a deeper team. They are vastly superior offensively and like at least comparable defensively, but really should be superior defensively considering that they have fewer attackable weak spots in their rotation. And yet I still come down to feeling like, you know, heat devil magic, man. You can't rule them out. <laughs> like I I just know it's never that simple when this heat team is involved. So I am fully expecting a, a gritty in the mud kind of series that winds up going at least six games and honestly could tilt either way. Um, But like, I'm definitely leaning Celtics based on, on all of those matchup factors. I'll put this question to you though. So the series last year goes to seven games. Obviously we remember, you know, the, the heat storming back in like the final two minutes of that game seven and ultimately coming up just short when Jimmy Butler missed that pull-up three in transition that would have given them the lead. This version of the Heat, do you feel like they are better than last year's team at this time? Worse? Exactly the same? Like, how would you compare them? And I'll, I'll just run this down for you, like kind of the differences, okay? In the series last year, uh, Butler was banged up. Uh, I think he missed one of the games and, and missed like uh, at least a half in another one of the games. Hero missed a couple of games. Lowry was a shell of himself. So they were dealing with like those kinds of injuries. Obviously now Hero is just out, out. Butler is healthy-ish, I guess. He had the ankle thing. Lowry looks much, much better. Kind of sneakily though, like Oladipo was actually a big part of their success in that series last year. He's out. And then they have swapped out, you know, PJ Tucker starting power forward for... Kevin Love starting power forward. I think that's actually an interesting point. I don't know if he's playable in this series. I think he might be if the Celtics stick with their too big front court. If they opt to go smaller and have Horford at five and like, you know, want like Jalen Brown at the four, then I think that gets a lot tougher. Yeah. Um, but then the Heat have Caleb Martin, who is playing better than PJ Tucker did at any point yeah. last season, in my opinion. So where do you land on that? Better? Worse? Same? I think at worst, it's a wash. It's funny because last year, they were the number one seed with home court advantage in this series. And I think you can make the argument that they're in better shape as the eight seed going to Boston in this series than they were last year. But I almost want to call it a wash because of the reasons you already mentioned. It's like, yeah, you know, Butler's healthier and obviously playoff Jimmy's in full effect. But then it's like not having Oladipo, not having Hero. That that hurts. Uh, Lowry being better helps, but like you know, they don't have home court advantage. There's all these things where I think you can kind of go either way, and at the end of the day, call it a wash. But both ways end up with the Heat have a chance in this series, just like they ended up having a chance last year. Like I'm, I'm leaning Boston, but you just can't 
count this team out. You mentioned the love stuff and whether the, you know, how the heat respond to if say the Celtics go small and maybe it's that and maybe it's something else, but is there one tactical thing in this match, whether it's like lineups, whether it's uh, a certain scheme defense, like whatever it is that you think could ultimately determine this series where it's like, okay, if this breaks this way, Boston wins, or if it breaks the other way, Miami wins. Well, yeah, I mean, it's so lame, but like, are the Heat knocking down their threes is like kind of the biggest aspect of it for me. I think on on a sort of more micro level, like what is Rob Williams's role in the series? Like that plays into this idea of like, okay, are the Celtics going to come out and roll with that lineup? Are they going to go smaller to put a little bit more pressure on Miami's defense? I'm also curious, like if they do start Robert Williams, who does he guard? Because there is no obvious spot for him to like hide on slash rove off of in the heat starting lineup. Like you don't necessarily like Kevin Love can shoot. You know, he's not going to be your obvious sort of like helping place in the same way that PJ Tucker was. So I'm yeah, I'm a little curious about that. Like what is what do the lineups look like for Boston? And then I think also like Boston's pick and roll defense like. Last year, I was sort of going back through some of the some of my notes from the series last year, and ultimately, like their pick and roll coverage evolved as the series went on. But where they landed was they were playing mostly like a deep drop, and they were also going under a ton on Butler and really making a concerted effort to take away Bam on the roll. So part of taking Bam on the roll was like the drop. Like they just didn't want to let him get all the way to the rim. That opened up some kind of short roll opportunities for him, which from time to time he can get really hot from that zone and he can go off just like hitting those little push shots and mid-range jumpers. Later on in that series, they started pinching in aggressively, like a lot of nail help to not even let him get comfortable with those short roll catches. But again, the guys that they were helping off of were like PJ Tucker and Oladipo. And I weirdly feel like, you know, even though the Heat were statistically a much better shooting team last year than they were this year, I don't know that there are as many natural helping spots with this Heat heat team where like you'd feel comfortable bringing that kind of aggressive nail help to take away Bam on the roll. Like if, if the Heat, uh, structure their lineups in such a way that they're just putting more shooting on the floor. Like, where is that help coming from? I wonder. Off the top of my head, I'm trying to think of someone in the Heat rotation outside of Bam that you'd feel comfortable helping off of, and it's hard to think of one mm-hmm. right now. Um, well, I mean Butler, but Butler's well, going to be running a lot of those pick and rolls. He'll, he's going to have the ball in his hands in a lot of those actions. So. Yeah, that's a and that's a and good... I mean, like if if you're helping off him, he's gonna find a way to burn you as a cutter. Like he'll yes. he's he's an active off ball player, right? He's not just gonna stand idly by and let you help off. Yeah, no. So uh, I the, the answer is I don't know where the where where the Celtics can help off of uh, the, the Heat can make them pay for it. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, that I mean, but so that's why it comes back to like how well are they shooting the three ball? Because the Celtics are still going to do that. Yeah, they'll they'll help off Lowry, they'll help off Vincent, they'll help off Caleb Martin. Like they will dare the Heat to make shots, 
And so it's just really a question of like, are those guys going to do it? Are they going to shoot more like the team that we saw against Milwaukee or more like the team that we saw against New York? Their shooting luck certainly dried up. Or I don't know if you want to call it luck, but like their shooting certainly dried up against the Knicks. So I think, you know, ultimately they're going to, so they're going to switch a lot of those pick and rolls too, I guess. Like they'll do some deep drop, but they'll also switch like pretty much anything not involving Horford and Rob Williams. They will be willing to switch. And maybe even in some cases, they'll be willing to switch Horford out. Like Lowry, for example, would they be willing to switch Horford onto him? I kind of think maybe they would. Yeah, I think they would. But I think they're going to do everything they can to avoid putting two on the ball, at least like on the point of attack, at the point of attack. It'll be more like if they're engaging a third defender, it'll be that nail defender who's coming over. And so I wonder about that. Like, you know, we saw in the Bucks series where they were going under against Jimmy and not like double teaming him in isolation. And we saw how that went for them. The Knicks actually did bring a lot more ball pressure, did show more bodies to Jimmy. And when we talked about, you know, how the Heat had kind of, they they were the number one team in terms of rim frequency in the second round. That was a big part of it, right? Like they were able to swing the ball around, beat the Knicks rotations, find seams to get to the basket. I think the Celtics can kind of find the happy medium in between those two strategies. I don't think Butler is going to have the kind of series that he had against Milwaukee. And I don't think the Heat are going to get to the rim in this series the way they did against the Knicks. I, like, I think the the Celtics have what it takes to defend them really effectively. I guess it just comes down to, you know, can the Heat do the same thing to them at the other end and just turn mm-hmm. it into a rock fight the way they did last year? I'm sure they will. And Yeah, I'm sure they will too. But yeah, so I guess I'm thinking, d- does Rob Williams just guard Bam? Like, is that the way they go with it if they want to start him? And instead of, like, it leans away from the way they like to use him, right? Which is as a backline yeah. helper and not yeah. necessarily in ball screen coverage. He's much more effective at the former than he is at the latter. But I just, I, I don't know. There's not, like, an intuitive matchup for him, I don't think. No, I think, think. If, if he starts, it has to be Bam because, or else where are you putting him? Well, I think, yeah, you you put him on whoever you think is, like, the least threatening shooter in the Heat starting five. So, like... That could be Kevin Love, I guess. It could be Gabe Vincent. You know, like when the Sixers pulled P.J. Tucker in favor of DeAnthony Melton in the latter stages of that Celtics Sixers series, Rob Williams guarded DeAnthony Melton and he treated him the same way that he treated P.J. Tucker. And in most cases, he was let off the hook for it. So I kind of feel like ultimately they'll they'll just... I don't think they'll put him on BAM. I think actually they will just decide which heat shooter they're willing to live with giving open looks to. And they'll see how that goes. And maybe ultimately where they land is they just don't want to continue starting that too big look, or maybe they'll be proactive and they, you know, they, from the jump, they won't start it. But that's like the, maybe the most interesting element of this to me. But ultimately Celtics survive a long series is how you're leaning. (sighs) Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Um, And again, if I was just like working this out on paper with no priors, I'd be like Celtics and five. Right. But knowing what I know, <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I think yeah. more like six or seven is what I would pick. Yeah, I think it's going seven just because of those priors. Um, we got a bubble conference finals rematch, and I think we're going to get reverse results from the bubble. Yeah, I think so too. All right, 
Let's get the hell out of here after this absolute mega pod. We'll be back for one episode, probably midweek next week, because you're off a couple days this week. I'm off a day this week. Then it's the long weekend. So we'll probably talk to you all in a week. But until then, I want to send this week's shout out to at a view production on Twitter also goes by Jay Rich, who tweeted a few weeks ago to say that he couldn't agree more with our passionate response to the Giannis comments uh, and that he enjoys the podcast. Keep up the good work, guys. Well, keep up the good work in listening to us, Jay Rich, because as I always say, it's people like you that allow us to do what we do. So thank you, Jay Rich. We actually have a few shout outs banked because uh, a number of people reached out over the last couple of weeks. So glad to see that. But the usual call out, if you want a shout out that you so richly deserve for supporting the show, hit us up on Twitter at Joseph Cacharo or at Joey underscore double Y-O-U. Find me on Instagram at Joe underscore 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 cash. Email us joseph.cacharo at the score.com or joe.wolfon at the score.com and we will get you a shout out. Jay Rich, by the way, looks like he is in Guelph, Ontario. Let us know where you're listening from, what you like about the show, all that jazz. Anyway, until one of those future episodes where one of you gets a well-deserved shout-out. And until next week, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.